but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. This is the word of the Lord. Can I tell you guys how happy I am to be preaching on Melchizedek? <laughs> For those of you who don't know, um, I, I've often mentioned the name Melchizedek as a name that I wanted to name a son. My wife vetoed me. I know, right? How awesome the name would that have been? We would have called him Melky for short. It would have been so perfect. What a cool name. You know, I'm going to give you a quick overview on the book of Hebrews, because that's what we've been in since, since the beginning of January. We've been in the book of Hebrews. And the reason I give you overviews is, one, because there are people who might not have heard where we've been at. Two, it's always good to be reminded of kind of what we've learned. And three, for those of you who are here for the first time, it's good to have context of where we're at. The author of Hebrews started off trying to show us as Jesus is greater. Greater than the angels, than the prophets, greater even than Moses. He goes on to show that this great and above Jesus came down. He was the king, the champion, the priest, the brother who came down. And because we know now Jesus is greater and is accessible, we can now know to not turn away from him, but be in relationship with him as one household. This gives us rest. Deep spiritual rest that we've been longing for. We have this rest because we now know Jesus as our high priest. The one who intercedes for us. The one who is the ultimate sacrifice for us. So we can know this deep spiritual rest. So because we learned that last week, Jesus is our high priest. So today, we're talking about my favorite person in the Bible. Outside of Jesus, of course. I mean, Jesus has got to be number one, obviously. Otherwise, no, it's just bad. But... Favorite person in the Bible, always want to name my son after him, only mentioned twice in the Old Testament. So mysterious, yet so cool. In the book, Lord of the Rings, to show you how nerdy I am, in the book trilogy, Lord of the Rings, there's a character that comes and goes. So quick, in and out of the book, but he's the coolest character ever. Does anybody know who I'm talking about? Say it out loud. Yes! Tom Bombadil. His name is cool, too. Everybody's like, man, these guys are nerds. I love this guy named Tom Bombadil. He appears out of nowhere. He takes out these fearsome, bad characters. He does it all while singing a song. In the book, it literally says he's going, hi-ho, Tom Bombadillo, and he's just like taking out all these bad characters. Doesn't appear again, and just this kind of random character. And I always was like, who is Tom Bombadil? He's so cool. That's kind of how I've always felt about Melchizedek. It's this character that just kind of, kind of comes out of nowhere, a mysterious character that appears for a second and then disappears. I love Melky. So let's learn a little bit more about him and why he actually only mentioned twice in the Old Testament, once in Hebrews and once in Genesis. But why is he mentioned eight times in the book of Hebrews? Let's figure that out. Let me give you a little background first, though. The book of Hebrews was written to believers who were beginning to cave in from just constant pressure of being Christians. Now, th this, this pressure, this, this kind of persecution was not coming from the Roman authorities, but actually coming from the Jewish communities. The Romans kind of early on had considered the Christian church just kind of a sect within Judaism. They cared very little about how they might be different. They just were like, I don't care about you guys. But the Jews were greatly offended at these Christians and what they were claiming. 
The newly formed Christian church, made up of Jews and Gentiles, had the audacity to claim that they were the true descendants of Abraham. They were true Israel. Even more, they had the audacity to claim that the ones who understood the Old Testament, the unbelieving Jews, were blind to what its true meaning was. So what happened? The Jews attacked the Christians on two fronts, politically and intellectually. Politically, the Jews were appealed to the Roman government, saying, making accusations, saying, oh, the Christians are not a sect of Judaism. They're a dangerous cult. They want to overthrow the government. They're against the Roman Empire. They should put them in jail. You should take away their property. But even so, even when this stuff happened, the young Christians did not give in. They joyfully accepted their plight, considering it a badge of honor to suffer for Jesus. But the pressure kept on coming. Compounding this political pressure came intellectual attacks. The Jews were constantly challenging Christians about their claims, especially their claims about Abraham's children, as well as other challenges. How can you Christians claim God's with you in your little upper room worship services when we worship at a glorious temple in Jerusalem? That as the Bible commanded. How can you Christians claim to be Abraham's children when most of you have not even been circumcised as required of Abraham's male descendants? After a while, the pressure started again to these new young believers. They were tired. These arguments began to sound convincing. The book of Hebrews was written to these beleaguered Christians, ready to kind of, kind of give up. These are, like, these are good questions. I don't know what to do with this. Some of those believers had maybe stopped attending worship because of the pressure. Maybe, maybe they're right. Maybe we should just join the synagogue. What, maybe what we're doing is wrong. One of the Jewish challenges that seemed to have struck a chord among the Christians was a challenge to their claim that Jesus Christ was a priest. How, I mean, not only was he a priest, the Christians said he's the great high priest, the true and final high priest. How could that be? The Jews seem to say, you Christians say you believe in the Old Testament. You say Jesus was the final priest, but according to the Old Testament, only sons of Levi or the Levites were allowed to be priests. Well, Jesus was not from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah. Therefore, Jesus cannot be a priest according to the Old Testament, which you claim to believe. So the book of Hebrews arrives at this time. The author was here well aware of what's happening, is going on, and in chapter 5 and 7, he addresses this specific challenge. The first thing I want you to get from this text that we just read is that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. In fact, in this passage, by implication, it's taught that he's even greater than David. Two of the most heroic figures. I mean, Abraham is the patriarch. He's the man. He's the guy. Moses is the goat. I said that before. The greatest of all time, Moses, amongst the Jewish people. But Abraham is like the revered grandfather. He's the revered ancestor. He's the patriarch of the family. And they're saying Melchizedek is greater than him. Even greater than David, the greatest king ever. The guy who threw the stone and took out the giant greater than him. And that's emphasized in two ways. Look at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. So when Melchizedek meets Abraham, what does he do? He blessed him, and to him Abraham appointed a tenth of everything. Let me give you a little bit of context. Abraham's relative Lot was just captured by some Canaanite kings. And when I say kings, don't think of like kings of like major nations, more like warlords, you know, like smaller kings. 
And Lot and his family and all his possessions had been carted off into captivity. And Abraham gathers 300 of his best warriors, 300 men, and they go off to go rescue Lot and his family. Really cool movie setting, right? I'm like, I would watch this movie. This is what's in the Bible, by the way. So check it out. It's not boring. It has some cool stuff in there. But in this Bible, in the Bible now, there's just Abraham. He's gathered 300 of his best warriors, 300 of his best men, and he's like, I'm going to go rescue Lot and his family. And he goes and he defeats the captors. He, he, he wages war against him and he defeats him soundly. And he rescues Lot. And he takes, not only does he get all Lot's goods back, but he's like, the people he defeats, he takes all their goods. And when he comes back, he's met by Melchizedek, king of righteousness, king of Salem. That is, he's a king over the territory, the area of Salem. He's a king over the territory in which the city Jebus, J-E-B-U-S, will one day rest. The Jebusites, of course, occupy the site, which became the city of David, the city of Jerusalem. This king of Salem will come out, appear before Abraham, and he blesses Abraham. Now, I want you to hear how huge that is. This Melchizedek, king of the Jebusites, the king of this area of Jebus, where Jerusalem is going to be, he blesses Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, we're told that it is God who blesses Abraham, and then he blesses Abraham so he can be the blessing to the many nations. So when you have this encounter of this Canaanite land occupying King Melchizedek, the king of righteousness is the king of Salem, and then he sees Abraham, your expectation should be that Abraham blesses him. See, remember God himself blessed Abraham. And then told Abraham, you are going to be the blessing to the nations. So in this encounter, you should assume then that Abraham should be the one blessing Melchizedek. But that's not what happened. Melchizedek blesses Abraham. He blessed him. And notice that he says in verse 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So Melchizedek's blessing of Abraham shows that he is greater than Abraham. But not only that, Abraham tithes to Melchizedek, shows the greatness of Melchizedek. If you look at verse 2, Abraham apportioned a tenth, in other words, a tithe of everything. And look at what it says in, in Hebrews, says, Hebrews chapter 4, says this, or verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. So the fact that Abraham took a tenth of what he had and he gave it to Melchizedek shows the greatness of Melchizedek. What's the point? The point is Melchizedek, is Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. By way of passing, that means he's the king of Jerusalem before David was. The author of Hebrews is telling you this because what he said in verse 20 of chapter 6, Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And if Melchizedek is greater than Abraham and David, then Jesus is greater than Abraham and David. This is the first part of the argument that the author of Hebrews is trying to establish. Those of you guys, are the people are attacking you, saying, how can Jesus be a priest? Well, here, let me establish this. He's of the order of Melchizedek. And for starters, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham and David. Let's go on then and say that he's greater than Levi. Not only is Melchizedek greater than Abraham, Melchizedek is greater than Levi. Levi is the clan of Israel from which all the priests came. They're all Levites. Only Levites were able to become priests. So no male in Israel that was not of the tribe of Levi could be a priest. If you were the tribe of Benjamin, you could not be a priest. If you're the tribe of Judah, you could not be a priest. If you're the tribe of Dan, you could not be a priest. You had to be a tribe of Levi and Aaron, the Old Testament priesthood, were all descended from Levi. And here the author of Hebrews argues that Melchizedek was greater than Levi and therefore greater even than the Old Testament priesthood. Let's look at verse 3. 
He is without father or mother of or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now he tells you two things that show the superiority of Melchizedek. One, he has no genealogy. No genealogy is recorded anywhere in Genesis for Melchizedek. We're not told where he came from or where he went to be. We're told very little about him, but for priests, genealogy was so important. If you couldn't show your genealogy, you couldn't become a priest. You couldn't prove authentically that you were a Levite. There was no chance for you to be a priest. And this is even so more important this day and at that time in the New Testament when Israel had been carried off into exile and genealogies were lost and records were destroyed. It was so very important for a person to be able to establish themselves as being in the line of Levi. But Melchizedek has no genealogy. And furthermore, unlike the Old Testament priests who changed year after year, he said he's a priest forever. So in these ways, he's superior to Levi. Also, verses 5 and 6. Those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people. In the Old Testament code, you took tithes. Uh, the, the, in the Old Testament code, you brought tithes to the priests. Some of that money was used to operate the worship of Israel. Some of that money was used for the upkeep of the house of God. Some of that money was used to support the priests and their families. Kind of like what we see today, often the church and the giving of its people. Well, that was written down in the law that the Levites were to take tithes. They were to receive tithes from the people. But we're told in verse 6, this man who does not have his descent from Levi received tithes from Abraham. And so once again, this man who wasn't commanded to receive a tithe received a tithe from Abraham. His superiority is signified. Notice it says in verses 9 and 10, one might even say that Levi himself who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor. What the author of Hebrews is saying here is that even Levi, who was supposed to receive the tithe, in essence, paid the tithe because his ancestor Abraham paid the tithe to Melchizedek. All this is designed to show that Melchizedek is greater than Levi, greater than the Old Testament priesthood. Why did they need to hear this? Think about it this way. Here you are, and you're making this claim that you're saying Jesus is the ultimate high priest, and they're saying to you, no, he's not. They're saying, no, Jesus is not ultimate high priest because he's not a Levite. The book of author of Hebrews is saying, look, have you guys not heard that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek? He's a king priest forever. Melchizedek, who was greater. Melchizedek had kind of a cult following in some ways, too. Like he, he might now because of my jokes about his name. But before then, they were like, who is Melchizedek? He's so cool. And they thought the same thing. And they were like, maybe he's somebody that we should follow. Some people even thought because he was so cool that he was like a pre-incarnate Christ. And here's the deal, though. What they're saying to them, these people who are struggling with their faith, struggling with these intellectual challenges that are coming against them, saying, no, 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 Jesus can't be a priest because he's not a Levite. They're saying Jesus is the ultimate priest because the Levites paid tithe to him. Do you see that? Can I tell you something, guys? And this is something that just a little aside that I want to share with you. There are people who often want to think that faith doesn't need reason or doesn't need your intellect. That is not true whatsoever. Can you hear me? Can you hear me on that one? That I want you to know that both reason and intellect should go to further prove your faith, to further give credit to your faith. As a matter of fact, faith is what should give light to all reason and all intellect. 
Do you hear me? If anybody ever asks you to follow blindly after them, putting aside reason and intellect, say no. Run away. Go far away. Now I want you to hear this. Melchizedek is a type of Christ. There's much in Scripture that comes under the category of typology. There are many theological terms that we use in the Bible and in Bible teaching, but one is typology. Whenever we talk about a type, we mean kind of like an Old Testament picture of the person and work of Christ. For example, in the Old Testament, we read about a serpent being lifted up high, and all who looked upon the serpent were healed. Then we see in John chapter 3, that is a picture of Jesus. That as the Son of Man was lifted up, and we look upon him, he's healed. So that serpent was a type of Christ. Does that make sense, everybody? Are you with me so far, what a type is? We read in the Old Testament about lambs being slain for the forgiveness of sin. But then John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God in reference to Jesus. See, the Lamb was a type of Christ. Here, and we come to chapter 7, and we meet another Old Testament type. Now, guys, mind you, types are not exact correlations. So, for example, just because Jesus is compared to the Lamb of God doesn't mean that Jesus has wool. Does, does that make sense? Are you guys with me on that one? Okay, just, just making sure. Just making sure you guys are still there. Okay, I thought that was funny. <laughs> when I say Melchizedek is a type of Christ, it does not mean that Melchizedek is equal to or the same of Jesus. Hear me very well. But he is a very beautiful and interesting picture of who Jesus is. And Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, does not argue that Jesus is like Melchizedek. It argues that Melchizedek is like Jesus. The argument isn't that Jesus is like Melchizedek. The argument is that Melchizedek, he showed a type of Christ. Verse 3, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. That's a statement about Melchizedek. That Melchizedek resembles Jesus. I want you to hear this. So the author of Hebrews is saying, hey, Melchizedek is here. He's greater than Abraham. He's greater than David. He's greater than Levi. He's the fully high priest. He's greater than all the Old Testament high priests. But get this, he just resembles Jesus. Do you see what he's doing again? He's saying Melchizedek is pretty awesome, but Jesus is even greater. Jesus is the fulfillment of all Old Testament foreshadowing. This is one of the reasons that Melchizedek, what he does, and so many other characters in the Old Testament, all these types of Jesus, they all point to the ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. The author of Hebrews is pressing us two massive truths about Jesus. He is eternal, therefore his priesthood is eternal. And he as God has the power of blessing us. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Melchizedek is greater than Levi. Jesus' priesthood is according to Melchizedek. Therefore, he is greater than Abraham and Levi. That means that Jesus is greater than all the priesthood because Jesus is the real great high priest. And Melchizedek is like him. He's eternal and he's able to bless. What does all this mean for us practically? Melchizedek is better than Abraham and David and Levi, and Jesus is our priest of that order. Melchi, as I like to call him, is a picture of Jesus as our high king priest. So what? Where the king represented God to the people, the priest represented the people to God. Those were two distinct offices. The office of king was where the king represented God to the people, and the office of priest represented the people to God. 
Do you see the differences there? The king was a person of truth. The priest was the person of tears. I'll say that again. The king was supposed to be the person of truth, enacting justice in the land. Rule and regulation, truth. The priest was a person of tears, representing you, your brokenness, your heart, your need to God. I want you to hear this. Well, because Jesus is both king and priest, it means that Jesus has both the desire to save and the power to save. I'll say that again. Because he is order of Melchizedek, the king priest, he has both the desire to save and the power to save. It means that he sheds the tears on our behalf, pleading and interceding, but he also has the power to pardon. I don't want you to meet this, miss this. I want you to hear this. The writer says in verse 25 of chapter 7, I didn't have that on here. Maybe you can put it up there. Verse 25 of chapter 7, it says this. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. See, the problem with all the other priests, the writer says, is that they were, uh, they were all Levites, which meant they could only represent other Jews. But because Melchizedek has no recorded genealogy, we don't know what family line he belongs to. It's like he can represent anybody, and it's the same with Jesus. Melchizedek is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. In other words, you're not limited to your nationality or ethnicity with Jesus. I want you to hear this. In other words, Jesus can save anybody anywhere. Jesus didn't die for a specific person or type of person. He didn't die for a specific ethnicity or a specific nation. His cross is sufficient for sinners of all types. He can now save to the uttermost. Which means that what keeps you from God and what keeps man from God is not God and not your own, not your own sin. It is your own pride and unbelief. His blood is sufficient to pay the price for any sin. He was the priest, who the high priest, who presented himself as the offering before a holy, righteous God. And because his blood was sufficient, his payment was sufficient, because he was a priest who was sufficient and the king who was sufficient, and the only thing keeping us from accepting and knowing our freedom from sin and our relationship with God is ourselves. It's pride and it's unbelief. Here's what I mean by that. There's some people out there think they don't need God, so they have no interest in Him, right? You guys know what I'm talking about, right? There's a, it's kind of two, often two different things. There's one, there's a, like a lack of need. You know, yeah, I don't need God. There's, um, I'm pretty good. I'm a good person. I do good things, you know? I've, I've once given stuff to Goodwill, and, you know, I've, I've given money to somebody before, so I, I got this. I'm good, Right? You have one set. You got this kind of like, I'm good enough. I do good things. The good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, right? But then you have the other people, the other side, who kind of have this, like, this idea of, of um, well, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't what, what, is, what is there a need, right? Or I'm so bad that I can't even get clean. God, I, I, what I want you guys to understand is this. The reality is, is that neither of these people ever come to the cross of Jesus. You have to believe that the gospel, the, the, the gospel is this, that you are so bad, Jesus had to die to save you. 
but he was so gracious that he was glad to die to save you. We trip up at different parts of that statement. Some of us think we're not so bad that Jesus had to die to save us. Some of us think that we're so bad that there's no grace good enough to save us. And I'm telling you this, that the, the beautiful news of the gospel is, guys, no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, that ultimately you have such a need for God. Because ultimately, we always say, I always say this, the human condition is this, that we all want to be known, we all want to be loved, and we all crave purpose. But when we get to this point of trying to be known and wanting to be known, the reality is we're scared of being known. I know I am. It's a scary thing. You know, even in, in, in marriage, this idea of intimacy and of love and marriage and relationship and openness, it takes years of kind of even opening yourself up fully, Right? Because you're scared to be known. Because I know sometimes when I think about myself and my desire to be known, I want to be free. I want to be so relaxed and free. I want what Danny talked about in his sermon. I want to rest. I think the only way we rest is when you're just fully known and fully accepted in being known. Right? It comes back to the human condition. We want to rest. But the problem is, is when you start evaluating yourself, you start looking at yourself, you're like, man, if I was truly known with every guard down, every mask down, I don't even like myself, right? The depth of my darkness and the stuff that I've thought, the stuff that I've done, the stuff that I continue to do, the reality is sometimes I don't even like myself, so I'm going to keep on being fake, I'm going to keep on putting up masks, and that's exhausting, but you do it because you still want to be loved, Right? Because as much as you want to be known, you just as much want to be loved. And you think, well, the only way I can be loved is if I look a certain way, act a certain way, be a certain way. And so you put on these masks, you do all this work, and it's exhausting. You're spinning this hamster wheel over and over and over again because you want to be loved, but you also want to be known, and you're just exhausted in the middle of it because you're neither known or loved fully. Right? But here's the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ is this, that he is the king priest who paid the penalty for you. He's the king priest who knows you. He's the king priest that said, I know all the darkness, all the sin. I love you anyway. I will die for you so that the darkness and sin that you have is wiped away, is made clean. And so when I look at you, I see pure white, clean as snow. So that no longer do we have to wear masks and, and, and hide who we are and act and anything. We can just be known. And we can also be, in this reality of being known, we can stop and say, I'm loved in this. With all this, I'm still loved. And in that love, you can say, I can rest. I can rest. This is the king priest we need, the king priest who's able to save. He's the, he's the priest who he cries the tears, but he's also the priest, the king who provides the truth. That to be known in judgment, but to be forgiven in grace. And we have this rest in him. 
Guys, for those of you who are sitting here, if you do not know this rest and you're so tired of running and spinning your wheels in this, in this hamster wheel called life and you're tired of wearing masks and you're tired of not being known, you're tired of never knowing that you can actually just fully rest, can I tell you that there is an ultimate rest promised to you, but there is a spiritual rest promised to you now that you can be known and you can be loved, that the gospel of Jesus is a free gift for you. All you need to do, the pay, payment was already paid, he paid the price, all you need to do is accept it. And it's for you today. I don't care if you're sitting here and you're thinking, man, you don't know half of what I've done. I'm messed up. I ran so far. I've done so much stuff. There's no way that rest is for me. Can't tell you it is. It absolutely is. And there are a lot of you today who says, I don't need that. Maybe you're young and you're like, I've been running. I feel good, man. I can run a marathon. I can run a marathon. I'm telling you, you're going to need it. (laughs) Trust me on that. And it's here for you too. We have a king priest who is more powerful, who's greater than Abraham, who's greater than Levi, who's greater than David, who rules in our place, who's died in our stead. He is the ultimate true high priest. He is ours. He restores you perfectly to God. Do you know him as such? Do you go to him as your king priest? Know that he's mighty to save. Know that he's conquered everything that has ever happened. Every temptation he's ever faced, he's with you, interceding on your behalf. You're never alone in this battle. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, God, we thank you for the type of Melchizedek. God, we thank you that this person, Melchizedek, existed so that I have a cool name to talk about. But also, God, we thank you that Melchizedek existed because he shows us a picture of Jesus. He is the king priest of righteousness and of peace. He is the one who reigns but who also died on our behalf. He is the one who cried our tears but also provided our truth. Thank you for Jesus Thank you that in Jesus is king priest and we can be known, we can be loved, and we can stand in confidence before your throne in prayer because not because we were good enough, not because we were the right type or the right race or the right ethnicity, not because of any of that stuff, but because of the grace and love of Jesus and the work he's performed on the cross on our behalf. God, we thank you. Thank you that we now have a king priest who ever prays for us. Thank you now that our confidence before the throne is Jesus and not ourselves. Thank you that we can go to him and know that he is desired to save and the power to save. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand and